Black Clock Audio Tales 2019, Mary Shelley. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green, scaly-looking fabric that's actually a soft plush. Foam footbeds, non-slip grips on your soles so you don't slip around. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's 9. Footbed measures 10.5. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter or two at a time, or a couple of short stories, maybe some folklore. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us at the end of the month every last Tuesday of the month where we have The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you get to hear me talk in a lot more dumb voices than right now. Look for us wherever you look for podcasts, rate, review, and give us five, four, three, two, one stars. We don't like the one and two stars, but hey, if that's how you feel, you probably have a vendetta against us and don't know how to use the skip button. We are on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitter as Black Clock Audio Tales, or just Google us, Black Clock Audio Tales. There's no one else named that, otherwise we wouldn't name it this. Thank you, and let's get going with The Last Man by Mary Shelley. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3. Chapter 1 Hear you not the rushing sound of the coming tempest? Do you not behold the clouds open and destruction lurid and dire pour down upon the blasted earth? See you not the thunderbolt fall and are deafened by the shout of heaven that follows its descent? Feel you not the earth quake and open with agonizing groans while the air is pregnant with shrieks and wailings, all announcing the last days of man? No, none of these things accompanied our fall. The balmy air of spring breathed from nature's ambrosial home invested the lovely earth which wakened as a young mother about to lead forth in pride her beauteous offspring to meet their sire who had been long absent. The buds decked the trees, the flowers adorned the land. The dark branches, swollen with seasonable juices, expanded into leaves, and the variegated foliage of spring, bending and singing in the breeze, rejoiced in the genial warmth of the unclouded Empyrean. The brooks flowed, murmuring, the sea was waveless, and the promontories that overhung it were reflected in the placid waters. Birds awoke in the woods, while abundant food for man and beast sprung up from the dark ground. Where was pain and evil? Not in the calm air or weltering ocean. Not in the woods or fertile fields, nor among the birds that made the woods resonant with song, nor the animals that in the midst of plenty basked in the sunshine. Our enemy, like the calamity of Homer, trod our hearts, and no sound was echoed from her steps. With ills the land is rife, with ills the sea. Diseases haunt our frail humanity. 
Through noon, through night, on casual wing they glide, silent, a voice the power all-wise denied. Once man was a favorite of the Creator, as the royal psalmist sang, God had made him a little lower than the angels, and had crowned him with glory and honor. God made him to have dominion over the works of his hands, and put all things under his feet. Once it was so. Now is man lord of the creation? Look at him! Ha! I see plague! She has invested his form, is incarnate in his flesh has entwined herself with his being, and blinds his heaven-seeking eyes. Lie down, O oh man, on the flower-strown earth. Give up all claim to your inheritance. All you can ever possess of it is the small cell which the dead require. Plague is the companion of spring, of sunshine and plenty. We no longer struggle with her. We have forgotten what we did when she was not. Of old navies used to stem the giant ocean waves betwixt Indus and the Pole for slight articles of luxury. Men made perilous journeys to possess themselves of earth's splendid trifles, gems, and gold. Human labor was wasted, human life set at naught. Now life is all that we covet. That this automation of flesh should, with joints and springs in order, perform its functions, that this dwelling of the soul should be capable of containing its dweller. Our minds, late spread abroad through countless spheres and endless combinations of thought, now retrench themselves behind this wall of flesh, eager to preserve its well-being only. We were surely sufficiently degraded. At first the increase of sickness in spring brought increase of toil to such of us who, as yet spared to life, bestowed our time and thoughts on our fellow creatures. We nerved ourselves to the task. In the midst of despair we performed the tasks of hope. We went out with the resolution of disputing with our foe. We aided the sick and comforted the sorrowing turning from the multitudinous dead to the rare survivors, with an energy of desire that bore the resemblance of power, we bade them live. Plague sat paramount the while, and laughed us to scorn. Have any of you, my readers, observed the ruins of an anthill immediately after its destruction? At first it appears entirely deserted of its former inhabitants. In a little time, you see an ant struggling through the upturned mold. They reappear by twos and threes, running hither and thither in search of their lost companions. Such were we upon earth, wondering aghast at the effects of pestilence. Our empty habitations remained, but the dwellers were gathered to the shades of the tomb. As the rules of order and pressure of laws were lost, some began with hesitation and wonder to transgress the accustomed uses of society. Palaces were deserted, and the poor man dared at length, unreproved, intrude into the splendid apartments, whose very furniture and decorations were an unknown world to him. It was found that, though at first the stop put to all circulation of property, had reduced those before supported by the factitious wants of society to sudden and hideous poverty. Yet when the boundaries of private possession were thrown down, 
the products of human labor at present existing were more, far more, than the thin generation could possibly consume. To some among the poor, this was matter of exultation. We were all equal now. Magnificent dwellings, luxurious carpets, and beds of down were afforded to all. Carriages and horses, gardens, pictures, statues, and princely libraries, there were enough of these even to superfluity, and there was nothing to prevent each from assuming possession of his share. We were all equal now, but near at hand was an equality still more leveling, a state where beauty and strength and wisdom would be as vain as riches and birth. The grave yawned beneath us all, and its prospect prevented any of us from enjoying the ease and plenty which in so awful a manner was presented to us. Still the bloom did not fade on the cheeks of my babes, and Clara sprung up in years and growth unsullied by disease. We had no reason to think the site of Windsor Castle peculiarly healthy, for many other families had expired beneath its roof. We lived, therefore, without any particular precaution, but we lived, it seemed, in safety. If Idris became thin and pale, it was anxiety that occasioned the change, an anxiety I could in no way alleviate. She never complained, but sleep and appetite fled from her. A slow fever preyed on her veins, her color was hectic, and she often wept in secret. Gloomy prognostications, care, and agonizing dread ate up the principle of life within her. I could not fail to perceive this change. I often wished that I had permitted her to take her own course and engage herself in such labors for the welfare of others as might have distracted her thoughts, but it was too late now. Besides that, with the nearly extinct race of man, all our toils grew near a conclusion. She was too weak. Consumption, if so it might be called, or rather the overactive life within her, which, as with Adrian, spent the vital oil in the early morning hours, deprived her limbs of strength. At night, when she could leave me unperceived, she wandered through the house, or hung over the couches of her children and in the daytime would sink into a perturbed sleep, while her murmurs and starts betrayed the unquiet dreams that vexed her. As this state of wretchedness became more confirmed, and, in spite of her endeavours at concealment, more apparent, I strove, though vainly, to awaken in her courage and hope. I could not wonder at the vehemence of her care. Her very soul was tenderness. She trusted, indeed, that she should not outlive me if I became the prey of the vast calamity, and this thought sometimes relieved her. We had for many years trod the highway of life hand in hand, and still thus linked we might step within the shades of death. But her children, her lovely, playful, animated children, being sprung from her own dear side, portions of her own being, depositories of our loves. Even if we died, it would be comfort to know that they ran man's accustomed course. But it would not be so. Young and blooming as they were, they would die. And from the hopes of maturity, from the proud name of attained manhood, they were cut off for ever. 
often with maternal affection she had figured their merits and talents exerted on life's wide stage. Alas for these latter days! The world had grown old, and all its inmates partook of the decrepitude. Why talk of infancy, manhood, and old age? We all stood equal sharers of the last throes of time-worn nature. Arrived at the same point of the world's age, there was no difference in us. The name of parent and child had lost their meaning. Young boys and girls were level now with men. This was all true, but it was not less agonizing to take the admonition home. Where could we turn and not find a desolation pregnant with the dire lesson of example? The fields had been left uncultivated, weeds and gaudy flowers sprung up, or where a few wheat-fields shewed signs of the living hopes of the husbandman, the work had been left halfway. The ploughman had died beside the plough. The horses had deserted the furrow, and no seedsman had approached the dead. The cattle unattended wandered over the fields and through the lanes. The tame inhabitants of the poultry-yard, balked of their daily food, had become wild. Young lambs were dropped in flower-gardens, and the cows stalled in the hall of pleasure. Sickly and few, the country people neither went out to sow nor reap, but sauntered about the meadows, or lay under the hedges when the inclement sky did not drive them to take shelter under the nearest roof. Many of those who remained secluded themselves. Some had laid up stores which would prevent the necessity of leaving their homes. Some deserted wife and child, and imagined that they secured their safety in utter solitude. Such had been Ryland's plan, and he was discovered dead and half devoured by insects, in a house many miles from any other, with piles of food laid up in useless superfluity. Others made long journeys to unite themselves with those they loved, and arrived to find them dead. London did not contain above a thousand inhabitants, and this number was continually diminishing. Most of them were country people, come up for the sake of change. The Londoners had sought the country. The busy eastern part of the town was silent, or at most you saw only where, half from cupidity, half from curiosity, the warehouses had been more ransacked than pillaged. Bales of rich India goods, shawls of price, jewels and spices, unpacked strewed the floors. In some places the possessor had, to the last, kept watch on his store, and died before the barred gates. The massy portals of the churches swung creaking on their hinges, and some few lay dead on the pavement. The wretched female, loveless victim of vulgar brutality, had wandered to the toilet of high-born beauty, and, arraying herself in the garb of splendor, had died before the mirror which reflected to herself alone her altered appearance. Women whose delicate feet had seldom touched the earth in their luxury had fled in fright and horror from their homes, till, losing themselves in the squalid streets of the metropolis, they had died on the threshold of poverty. The heart sickened at the variety of misery presented, and when I saw a specimen of this gloomy change, my soul ached with the fear of what might befall my beloved Idris and my babes. Were they, surviving Adrian and myself, to find themselves protectorless in the world? As yet the mine alone had suffered. Could I forever put off the time when the delicate frame and shrinking nerves of my child of prosperity 
the nursling of rank and wealth who was my companion should be invaded by famine, hardship, and disease? Better die at once. Better plunge a poniard in her bosom, still untouched by drear adversity, and then again sheathe it in my own. But no. In times of misery we must fight against our destinies and strive not to be overcome by them. I would not yield, but to the last gasp resolutely defended my dear ones against sorrow and pain. And if I were vanquished at last, it should not be ingloriously. I stood at the gap, resisting the enemy, the impalpable, invisible foe, who had so long besieged us. As yet he had made no breach. It must be by care that he should not, secretly undermining, burst up within the very threshold of the temple of love at whose altar I daily sacrificed. The hunger of death was now stung more sharply by the diminution of his food. Or was it that before, the survivors being many, the dead were less eagerly counted? Now each life was a gem, each human breathing form of far, Oh, far more worth than subtlest imagery of sculpted stone. And the daily, nay, hourly decrease visible in our numbers visited the heart with sickening misery. This summer extinguished our hopes. The vessel of society was wrecked, and the shattered raft which carried the few survivors over the sea of misery was riven and tempest-tossed. Man existed by twos and threes man, the individual who might sleep and wake and perform the animal functions, but man, in himself weak yet more powerful in congregated numbers than wind or ocean, man, the queller of the elements, the lord of created nature, the peer of demigods, existed no longer. Farewell to the patriotic scene, to the love of liberty and well-earned meed of virtuous aspiration. Farewell to crowded senate, vocal with the counsels of the wise, whose laws were keener than the sword-blade tempered at Damascus. Farewell to kingly pomp and warlike pageantry. The crowns are in the dust, and the wearers are in their graves. Farewell to the desire of rule and the hope of victory, to high-vaulting ambition, to the appetite for praise and the craving for the suffrage of their fellows. The nations are no longer. No senate sits in council for the dead. No scion of a time-honored dynasty pants to rule over the inhabitants of a charnel house. The general's hand is cold, and the soldier has his untimely grave dug in his native fields, unhonored though in youth. The marketplace is empty. The candidate for popular favor finds none whom he can represent. The chambers of painted state farewell to midnight revelry and the panting emulation of beauty, to costly dress and birthday shoe, to title and the gilded coronet farewell. Farewell to the giant powers of man, to knowledge that could pilot the deep drawing bark through the opposing waters of shoreless ocean to science that directed the silken balloon through the pathless air, to the power that could put a barrier to mighty waters and set in motion wheels and beams and vast machinery that could divide rocks of granite or marble and make the mountains plain. Farewell to the arts, to eloquence which is to the human mind as the winds to the sea, 
stirring and then allaying it. Farewell to poetry and deep philosophy, for man's imagination is cold, and his inquiring mind can no longer expatiate on the wonders of life, for there is no work, no device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest to the graceful building which in its perfect proportion transcended the rude forms of nature, the fretted gothic and massy Saracenic pile, to the stupendous arch and glorious dome, the fluted column with its capital, Corinthian, Ionic, or Doric, the peristyle and fair entablature, whose harmony or form is to the eye's musical concord to the ear. Farewell to sculpture, where the pure marble mocks human flesh, and in the plastic expression of the cold excellencies of the human shape shines forth the god. Farewell to painting, the high-wrought sentiment and deep knowledge of the artist's mind in pictured canvas, to paradisical scenes where the stamped form of tempest and wildest uproar of universal nature encaged in the narrow frame. Oh, farewell, farewell to music and the sound of song, to the marriage of instruments where the concord of soft and harsh unites in sweet harmony, and gives wings to the panting listeners whereby to climb heaven and learn the hidden pleasures of the Eternals. Farewell to the well-trod stage. A truer tragedy is enacted on the world's ample scene that puts to shame mimic grief. To high-bred comedy and the low buffoon farewell, man may laugh no more. Alas, to enumerate the adornments of humanity, shoes by what we have lost, how supremely great man was. It is all over now. He is solitary, like our first parents expelled from paradise. He looks back towards the scene he has quitted, the high walls of the tomb and the flaming sword of plague lie between it and him. Like to our first parents, the whole earth is before him, a wide desert. Unsupported and weak, let him wander through the fields where the unreaped corn stands in barren plenty, through copses planted by his fathers, through towns built for his use. Posterity is no more. Fame and ambition and love are words void of meaning. Even as the cattle that grazes in the field, do thou, O deserted one, lie down at evening tide, unknowing of the past, careless of the future. For from such fond ignorance alone canst thou hope for ease. Joy paints its own colors every act and thought. The happy do not feel poverty, for delight is as a gold-tissued robe and crowns them with priceless gems. Enjoyment plays the cook to their homely fare, and mingles intoxication with their simple drink. Joy strews the hard couch with roses, and makes labor ease. Sorrow doubles the burthen to the bent-down back, plants thorns in the unyielding pillow, mingles gall with water, adds saltness to their bitter bread, clothing them in rags and strewing ashes on their bare heads. To our irredeemable distress, every small and pelting inconvenience came with added force. We had strung our frames to endure the Adlian weight thrown on us. We sank beneath the added feather chance threw on us. The grasshopper was a burthen. 
Many of the survivors had been bred in luxury. Their servants were gone, their powers of command vanished like unreal shadows. The poor even suffered various privations, and the idea of another winter like the last brought a fright to our minds. Was it not enough that we must die, but toil must be added? Must we prepare our funeral repast with labor, and with unseemly drudgery heap fuel on our deserted hearths? Must we with servile hands fabricate the garments soon to be our shroud? Not so. We are presently to die. Let us then enjoy to its full relish the remnant of our lives, sordid care of aunt. Menial labors and pains, slight in themselves, but too gigantic for our exhausted strength, shall make no part of our ephemeral existences. In the beginning of time, when as now man lived by families and not by tribes or nations, they were placed in a genial clime where earth fed them untilled in the balmy air and wrapped their reposing limbs with warmth more pleasant than beds of down. The south is the native place of the human race the land of fruits more grateful to man than the hard-earned saris of the north, of trees whose boughs are as a palace roof, of couches of roses and of the thirst-appeasing grape. We need not there fear cold and hunger. Look at England. The grass shoots up high in the meadows, but they are dank and cold, unfit bed for us. Corn we have none, and the crude fruits cannot support us. We must seek firing in the bowels of the earth, or the unkind atmosphere will fill us with rheums and aches. The labor of hundreds of thousands alone could make this inclement nook fit habitation for one man. To the south, then, to the sun, where nature is kind, where Jove has showered forth the contents of Amalthea's horn, and earth is garden. England late birthplace of excellence and school of the wise, thy children are gone, thy glory faded. Thou, England, wert the triumph of man, small favor was shewn thee by thy creator, thou isle of the north. A ragged canvas naturally, painted by man with alien colors, but the hues he gave are faded, never more to be renewed. So we must leave thee, Thou marvel of the world, we must bid farewell to thy clouds and cold and scarcity for ever. Thy manly hearts are still, thy tale of power and liberty at its close. Bereft of man, O little isle, the ocean waves will buffet thee, and the raven flap his wings over thee. Thy soil will be birthplace of weeds, thy sky will canopy barrenness. It was not for the rose of Persia thou wert famous, nor the banana of the east, nor for the spicy gales of India, nor the sugar groves of America, not for thy vines, nor thy double harvests, nor for thy vernal airs, nor solstitial sun, but for thy children, their unwearied industry and lofty aspiration. They are gone and thou goest with them the oft-trodden path that leads to oblivion. Farewell, sad isle, farewell, thy fatal glory is sound, cast up and cancelled in this story.
Hey listeners, sorry for the interruption. More The Last Man coming up. But before that, I'd like to thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and your suggestions for future episodes and topic ideas at facebook.com blackclockaudio. Help support the show by keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate a buck or five to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. We'll never ask you for your info or ask you to fill out a survey or just tell your friends about us. That's, that's all we ask. Do you have no cash to donate? That's fine. Neither do we. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you get your podcasts from. You can always buy a cool shirt from pgttcm.threadless.com. And if you're wondering, hey, what's all this PGTTCM stuff about? People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly end-of-the-month show where we talk to Cthulhu Mythos writers, game designers, talk about various aspects of the Cthulhu Mythos, going from the Big Bang to the cooling of our sun, just the whole, whole, whole kit and caboodle. From the perspective of Earthlings, of course. Next month is going to be Ambrose Bitter Bierce, one of my favorite weird fiction authors who also wrote Civil War tales and spooky dookie stories, and also, you know, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, that, that uh, story your 8th or ninth grade English teacher made you read? Yeah. Ambrose Spears, but we won't hold that against him. It's a good story, though. And in August, we're going to have anyone but Durleth Cthulhu Mythos, non-Durlethian Mythos stories, and more about August Durleth himself and Arkham House Publishing, and pretty much, I don't know, kind of talk about why everyone makes fun of August Durleth, but without him, uh, there's, there's, there's some stuff that would be missing. September. Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Oh yeah, it's going to be all about the Brontes. And of course, we'll more than likely have Andrew Grace uh, talking about the Brontes again, because Andrew Grace likes to talk about the Brontes. October, nothing but spooky stories that you can play all October long, and ooh, maybe even December and November when it's even darker and scarier. And November will be Old English Lit. So we're going to be doing stuff like Beowulf and stuff around that neck of the woods. Old English 800 lit. It's that smooth, mellow lit that gives you more power. Old English 800 lit. And we don't have anything planned for December. But hey, if you want to pitch in your two cents or your, I don't know, uh, opinion, we can, we, we'll listen, we'll check it out. And if it's something that we can arrange, then it's something we can do. So... Your input is always appreciated. Thank you so much. And back to Mary Shelley's The Last Man. Recording by Christine Blashford, www.sidepodcast.com. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3, Chapter 2. In the autumn of this year, 2096, the spirit of emigration crept in among the few survivors who, congregating from various parts of England, met in London. This spirit existed as a breath, a wish, a far-off thought, until communicated to Adrian, who imbibed it with ardour and instantly engaged himself in plans for its execution. 
The fear of immediate death vanished with the heats of September. Another winter was before us, and we might elect our mode of passing it to the best advantage. Perhaps in rational philosophy none could be better chosen than this scheme of migration, which would draw us from the immediate scene of our woe, and, leading us through pleasant and picturesque countries, amuse for a time our despair. The idea once broached, all were impatient to put it in execution. We were still at Windsor. Our renewed hopes medicined the anguish we had suffered from the late tragedies. The death of many of our inmates had weaned us from the fond idea that Windsor Castle was a spot sacred from the plague. But our lease of life was renewed for some months, and even Idris lifted her head as a lily after a storm, when a last sunbeam tinges its silver cup. Just at this time Adrian came down to us. His eager looks showed us that he was full of some scheme. He hastened to take me aside and disclosed to me with rapidity his plan of emigration from England. To leave England for ever, to turn from its polluted fields and groves, and placing the sea between us, to quit it, as a sailor quits the rock on which he has been wrecked, when the saving ship rides by. Such was his plan. To leave the country of our fathers, made holy by their graves. We could not feel, even as a voluntary exile of old, who might for pleasure or convenience forsake his native soil, though thousands of miles might divide him. England was still a part of him, as he of her. He heard of the passing events of the day, he knew that if he returned and resumed his place in society the entrance was still open, and it required but the will to surround himself at once with the associations and habits of boyhood. Not so with us, the remnant. We left none to represent us, none to repeople the desert land, and the name of England died when we left her, in vagabond pursuit of dreadful safety. Yet let us go, England is in her shroud, we may not enchain ourselves to a corpse. Let us go, the world is our country now, and we will choose for our residence its most fertile spot. Shall we, in these desert halls, under this wintry sky, sit with closed eyes and folded hands, expecting death? Let us rather go out to meet it gallantly, or perhaps for all this pendulous orb, this fair gem in the sky's diadem, is not surely plague-stricken. Perhaps in some secluded nook, amidst eternal spring and waving trees and purling streams, we may find life. The world is vast, and England, though her many fields and widespread woods seem interminable, is but a small part of her. At the close of a day's march over high mountains and through snowy valleys, we may come upon health, and, committing our loved ones to its charge, replant the uprooted tree of humanity, and send to late posterity the tale of the anti-pestilential race, the heroes and sages of the lost state of things. Hope beckons and sorrow urges us, the heart beats high with expectation, and this eager desire of change must be an omen of success. Oh come, farewell to the dead, farewell to the tombs of those we loved, farewell to giant London and the placid Thames, to river and mountain or fair district, birthplace of the wise and good, to Windsor Forest and its antique castle, farewell. Themes for story alone are they, we must live elsewhere. Such were in part the arguments of Adrian uttered with enthusiasm and unanswerable rapidity. Something more was in his heart, to which he dared not give words. He felt that the end of time was come, he knew that one by one we should dwindle into nothingness. It was not advisable to wait this sad consummation in our native country, but travelling would give us that object for each day, that would distract our thoughts from the swift approaching end of things. If we went to Italy, to sacred and eternal Rome, we might with greater patience submit to the decree which had laid her mighty towers low. We might lose our selfish grief in the sublime aspect of its desolation. All this was in the mind of Adrian, but he thought of my children, and, instead of communicating to me these resources of despair, he called up the image of health and life to be found, where we knew not, when we knew not, but if never to be found, for ever and for ever to be sought, he won me over to his party, heart and soul. 
It devolved on me to disclose our plan to Idris. The images of health and hope which I presented to her made her with a smile consent. With a smile she agreed to leave her country, from which she had never before been absent, and the spot she had inhabited from infancy, the forest and its mighty trees, the woodland paths and green recesses, where she had played in childhood, and had lived so happily through youth. She would leave them without regret, for she hoped to purchase thus the lives of her children. They were her life, dearer than a spot consecrated to love, dearer than all else the earth contained. The boys heard with childish glee of our removal. Clara asked if we were to go to Athens. It is possible, I replied, and her countenance became radiant with pleasure. There she would behold the tomb of her parents, and the territory filled with recollections of her father's glory. In silence but without respite she had brooded over these scenes. It was the recollection of them that had turned her infant gaiety to seriousness, and had impressed her with high and restless thoughts. There were many dear friends whom we must not leave behind, humble though they were. There was the spirited and obedient steed which Lord Raymond had given his daughter. There was Alfred's dog and the pet eagle, whose sight was dimmed through age. But this catalogue of favourites to be taken with us could not be made without grief to think of our heavy losses, and a deep sigh for the many things we must leave behind. The tears rushed into the eyes of Idris, while Alfred and Evelyn bought now a favourite rose-tree, now a marble vase beautifully carved, insisting that these must go, and exclaiming on the pity that we could not take the castle and the forest, the deer and the birds, and all accustomed and cherished objects along with us. Fond and foolish ones, I said, we have lost for ever treasures far more precious than these, and we desert them to preserve treasures to which in comparison they are nothing. Let us not for a moment forget our object and our hope, and they will form a resistless mound to stop the overflowing of our regret for trifles. The children were easily distracted, and again returned to their prospect of future amusement. Idris had disappeared. She had gone to hide her weakness, escaping from the castle. She had descended to the little park and sought solitude, that she might there indulge her tears. I found her clinging round an old oak, pressing its rough trunk with her roseate lips, as her tears fell plenteously, and her sobs and broken exclamations could not be suppressed. With surpassing grief I beheld this loved one of my heart, thus lost in sorrow. I drew her towards me, and as she felt my kisses on her eyelids, as she felt my arms press her, she revived to the knowledge of what remained to her. "'You are very kind not to reproach me,' she said. "'I weep, and a bitter pang of intolerable sorrow tears my heart. "'And yet I am happy. Mothers lament their children, wives lose their husbands, while you and my children are left to me. "'Yes, I am happy, most happy, that I can weep thus for imaginary sorrows, "'and that the slight loss of my adored country is not dwindled and annihilated in mightier misery. "'Take me where you will. Where you and my children are, there shall be Windsor, and every country will be England to me. "'Let these tears flow not for myself, happy and ungrateful as I am, but for the dead world, for our lost country, "'for all of love and life and joy, now choked in the dusty chambers of death.' "'She spoke quickly, as if to convince herself. "'She turned her eyes from the trees and forest paths she loved. "'She hid her face in my bosom, and we, yes, my masculine firmness dissolved. "'We wept together, consolatory tears, and then calm, nay, almost cheerful, we returned to the castle.' The first cold weather of an English October made us hasten our preparations. I persuaded Idris to go up to London, where she might better attend to necessary arrangements. I did not tell her that to spare her the pang of parting from inanimate objects, now the only things left, I had resolved that we should none of us return to Windsor. For the last time we looked on the wide extent of country visible from the terrace, and saw the last rays of the sun tinge the dark masses of wood variegated by autumnal tints. The uncultivated fields and smokeless cottages lay in shadow below. The Thames wound through the wide plain, and the venerable pile of Eton College stood in dark relief, a prominent object, the coring of the myriad rooks which inhabited the trees of the little park, as in column or thick wedge they speeded to their nests, disturbed the silence of the evening. Nature was the same as when she was the kind mother of the human race, now, childless and forlorn, her fertility was a mockery, her loveliness a mask for deformity. 
Why should the breeze gently stir the trees? Man felt not its refreshment. Why did dark night adorn herself with stars? Man saw them not. Why are there fruits or flowers or streams? Man is not here to enjoy them. Idris stood beside me, her dear hand locked in mine. Her face was radiant with a smile. The sun is alone, she said, but we are not. A strange star, my Lionel, ruled our birth, sadly, and with dismay we may look upon the annihilation of man, but we remain for each other. Did I ever in the wide world seek other than thee? And since in the wide world thou remainest, why should I complain? Thou and nature are still true to me. Beneath the shades of night and through the day, whose garish light displays our solitude, thou wilt still be at my side, and even Windsor will not be regretted. I had chosen night-time for our journey to London, that the change and desolation of the country might be the less observable. Our only surviving servant drove us. We passed down the steep hill and entered the dusky avenue of the long walk. At times like these, minute circumstances assumed giant and majestic proportions. The very swinging open of the white gate that admitted us into the forest arrested my thoughts as matter of interest. It was an everyday act, never to occur again. The setting crescent of the moon glittered through the massy trees to our right, and when we entered the park we scared a troop of deer that fled bounding away in the forest shades. Our two boys quietly slept. Once before our road turned from the view, I looked back on the castle. Its windows glistened in the moonshine, and its heavy outline lay in a dark mass against the sky. The trees near us waved a solemn dirge to the midnight breeze. Idris leaned back in the carriage, her two hands pressed mine, her countenance was placid, she seemed to lose the sense of what she now left, in the memory of what she still possessed. My thoughts were sad and solemn, yet not of unmingled pain. The very excess of our misery carried a relief with it, giving sublimity and elevation to sorrow. I felt that I carried with me those I best loved. I was pleased, after a long separation, to rejoin Adrian, never again to part. I felt that I quitted what I loved, not what loved me. The castle walls and long familiar trees did not hear the parting sound of our carriage wheels with regret, and while I felt Idris to be near and heard the regular breathing of my children, I could not be unhappy. Clara was greatly moved, with streaming eyes suppressing her sobs, she leaned from the window, watching the last glimpse of her native Windsor. Adrian welcomed us on our arrival. He was all animation, you could no longer trace in his look of health the suffering valetudinarian. From his smile and sprightly tones you could not guess that he was about to lead forth from their native country, the numbered remnant of the English nation, into the tenantless realms of the South, there to die one by one, till the last man should remain in the voiceless empty world. Adrian was impatient for our departure and had advanced far in his preparations. His wisdom guided all, his care was the soul to move the luckless crowd who relied wholly on him. It was useless to provide many things, for we should find abundant provision in every town. It was Adrian's wish to prevent all labour, to bestow a festive appearance on this funeral train. Our numbers amounted to not quite two thousand persons. These were not all assembled in London, but each day witnessed the arrival of fresh numbers, and those who resided in the neighbouring towns had received orders to assemble at one place on the 20th of November. Carriages and horses were provided for all, captains and under-officers chosen, and the whole assemblage wisely organised. All obeyed the Lord Protector of dying England, all looked up to him. His council was chosen, it consisted of about fifty persons. Distinction and station were not the qualifications of their election. We had no station among us, but that which benevolence and prudence gave, no distinction save between the living and the dead. Although we were anxious to leave England before the depth of winter, yet we were detained. Small parties had been dispatched to various parts of England in search of stragglers. We would not go until we had assured ourselves that in all human probability we did not leave behind a single human being. On our arrival in London we found that the aged Countess of Windsor was residing with her son in the palace of the Protectorate. We repaired to her accustomed abode near Hyde Park. Idris now for the first time for many years saw her mother, anxious to assure herself that the childishness of old age did not mingle with unforgotten pride, to make this high-born dame still so inveterate against me. 
Age and care had furrowed her cheeks and bent her form, but her eye was still bright, her manners authoritative and unchanged. She received her daughter coldly, but displayed more feeling as she folded her grandchildren in her arms. It is our nature to wish to continue our systems and thoughts to posterity through our own offspring. The Countess had failed in this design with regard to her children. Perhaps she hoped to find the next remove in birth more tractable. Once Idris named me casually, a frown, a convulsive gesture of anger, shook her mother, and with voice trembling with hate she said, I am of little worth in this world, the young are impatient to push the old off the scene, but Idris, if you do not wish to see your mother expire at your feet, never again name that person to me. All else I can bear, and now I am resigned to the destruction of my cherished hopes, but it is too much to require that I should love the instrument that Providence gifted with murderous properties for my destruction. This was a strange speech, now that, on the empty stage, each might play his part without impediment from the other, but the haughty ex-queen thought, as Octavius Caesar and Mark Antony, we could not stall together in the whole world. The period of our departure was fixed for the 25th of November. The weather was temperate, soft rains fell at night, and by day the wintry sun shone out. Our numbers were to move forward in separate parties, and to go by different routes, all to unite at last at Paris. Adrian and his division, consisting in all of five hundred persons, were to take the direction of Dover and Calais. On the 20th of November, Adrian and I rode for the last time through the streets of London. They were grass-grown and desert. The open doors of the empty mansions creaked upon their hinges. Rank herbage and deforming dirt had swiftly accumulated on the steps of the houses. The voiceless steeples of the churches pierced the smokeless air. The churches were open, but no prayer was offered at the altars. Mildew and damp had already defaced their ornaments. Birds and tame animals, now homeless, had built nests and made their lairs in consecrated spots. We passed St. Paul's. London, which had extended so far in suburbs in all direction, had been somewhat deserted in the midst, and much of what had in former days obscured this vast building was removed. Its ponderous mass, blackened stone and high dome, made it look not like a temple, but a tomb. Methought above the portico was engraved the hick jacet of England. We passed on eastwards, engaged in such solemn talk as the times inspired. No human step was heard, nor human form discerned. Troops of dogs, deserted of their masters, passed us, and now and then a horse, unbridled and unsaddled, trotted towards us, and tried to attract the attention of those which we rode, as if to allure them to seek like liberty. An unwieldy ox, who had fed in an abandoned granary, suddenly lowed and shooed his shapeless form in the narrow doorway. Everything was desert, but nothing was in ruin, and this medley of undamaged buildings and luxurious accommodation, in trim and fresh youth, was contrasted with the lonely silence of the unpeopled street. Night closed in, and it began to rain. We were about to return homewards when a voice, a human voice, strange now to hear, attracted our attention. It was a child singing a merry, lightsome air. There was no other sound. We had traversed London from Hyde Park, even to where we now were in the minories, and had met no person, heard no voice, nor footstep. The singing was interrupted by laughing and talking. Never was Mary Ditty so sadly timed, never laughter more akin to tears. The door of the house from which these sounds proceeded was open. The upper rooms were illuminated as for a feast. It was a large, magnificent house, in which doubtless some rich merchant had lived. The singing again commenced, and rang through the high-roofed rooms, while we silently ascended the staircase. Lights now appeared to guide us, and a long suite of splendid rooms illuminated made us still more wonder. Their only inhabitant, a little girl, was dancing, waltzing, and singing about them, followed by a large Newfoundland dog, who boisterously jumping on her and interrupting her made her now scold, now laugh, now throw herself on the carpet to play with him. She was dressed grotesquely in glittering robes and shawls fit for a woman. She appeared about ten years of age. We stood at the door looking on this strange scene, till the dog perceiving us barked loudly. The child turned and saw us. Her face, losing its gaiety, assumed a sullen expression. She slunk back, apparently meditating an escape. 
I came up to her and held her hand. She did not resist, but with a stern brow, so strange in childhood, so different from her former hilarity, she stood still, her eyes fixed on the ground. "'What do you do here?' I said gently. "'Who are you?' She was silent, but trembled violently. "'My poor child,' asked Adrian, "'are you alone?' There was a winning softness in his voice that went to the heart of the little girl. She looked at him, then, snatching her hand from me, threw herself into his arms, clinging round his neck, ejaculating, "'Save me! Save me!' while her unnatural sullenness dissolved in tears. "'I will save you,' he replied. "'Of what are you afraid? You need not fear my friend. He will do you no harm. Are you alone?' "'No, Lion is with me.' "'And your father and mother?' I never had any. I am a charity girl. Everybody is gone, gone for a great, great many days. But if they come back and find me out, they will beat me so. Her unhappy story was told in these few words. An orphan, taken on pretended charity, ill-treated and reviled, her oppressors had died. Unknowing of what had passed around her, she found herself alone. She had not dared venture out, but by the continuance of her solitude, her courage revived. Her childish vivacity caused her to play a thousand freaks, and with her brute companion she passed a long holiday, fearing nothing but the return of the harsh voices and cruel usage of her protectors. She readily consented to go with Adrian. In the meantime, while we descanted on alien sorrows, and on a solitude which struck our eyes and not our hearts, while we imagined all of change and suffering that had intervened in these once thronged streets, before, tenantless and abandoned, they became mere kennels for dogs and stables for cattle, while we read the death of the world upon the dark fane, and hugged ourselves in the remembrance that we possessed that which was all the world to us, in the meanwhile, we had arrived from Windsor early in October, and had now been in London about six weeks. Day by day, during that time, the health of my Idris declined. Her heart was broken, neither sleep nor appetite, the chosen servants of health, waited on her wasted form. To watch her children hour by hour, to sit by me, drinking deep the dear persuasion that I remained to her, was all her pastime. Her vivacity so long assumed, her affectionate display of cheerfulness, her light-hearted tone and springy gait were gone. I could not disguise to myself, nor could she conceal her life-consuming sorrow. Still, change of scene and reviving hopes might restore her. I feared the plague only, and she was untouched by that. I had left her this evening, reposing after the fatigues of her preparations. Clara sat beside her, relating a story to the two boys. The eyes of Idris were closed, but Clara perceived a sudden change in the appearance of our eldest darling. His heavy lids veiled his eyes, an unnatural colour burnt in his cheeks, his breath became short. Clara looked at the mother. She slept, yet started at the pause the narrator made fear of awaking and alarming her caused Clara to go on at the eager call of Evelyn, who was unaware of what was passing. Her eyes turned alternately from Alfred to Idris. With trembling accents she continued her tale, till she saw the child about to fall. Starting forward she caught him, and her cry roused Idris. She looked on her son. She saw death stealing across his features. She laid him on a bed. She held drink to his parched lips. Yet he might be saved. If I were there, he might be saved. Perhaps it was not the plague. Without a counsellor, what could she do? Stay and behold him die? Why, at that moment, was I away? Look to him, Clara, she exclaimed. I will return immediately. She inquired among those who, selected as the companions of our journey, had taken up their residence in our house. She heard from them merely that I had gone out with Adrian. She entreated them to seek me. She returned to her child. He was plunged in a frightful state of torpor. Again she rushed downstairs. All was dark, desert and silent. She lost all self-possession. She ran into the street. She called on my name. The pattering rain and howling wind alone replied to her. Wild fear gave wings to her feet. She darted forward to seek me. She knew not where, but putting all her thoughts, all her energy, all her being in speed only, most misdirected speed, she neither felt nor feared nor paused, but ran right on, till her strength suddenly deserted her so suddenly that she had not thought to save herself. 
Her knees failed her, and she fell heavily on the pavement. She was stunned for a time, but at length rose, and though sorely hurt, still walked on, shedding a fountain of tears, stumbling at times, going she knew not whither. Only now and then, with feeble voice, she called my name, adding with heart-piercing exclamations that I was cruel and unkind. Human being there was none to reply, and the inclemency of the night had driven the wandering animals to the habitations they had usurped. Her thin dress was drenched with rain, her wet hair clung round her neck. She tottered through the dark streets, till, striking her foot against an unseen impediment, she again fell. She could not rise, she hardly strove, but, gathering up her limbs, she resigned herself to the fury of the elements, and the bitter grief of her own heart. She breathed an earnest prayer to die speedily, for there was no relief but death. While hopeless of safety for herself, she ceased to lament for her dying child, but shed kindly bitter tears for the grief I should experience in losing her. While she lay, life almost suspended, she felt a warm, soft hand on her brow, and a gentle female voice asked her, with expressions of tender compassion, if she could not rise. That another human being, sympathetic and kind, should exist near, roused her. Half rising with clasped hands and fresh springing tears, she entreated her companion to seek for me, to bid me hasten to my dying child, to save him, for the love of heaven, to save him. The woman raised her, she led her under shelter, she entreated her to return to her home, whither perhaps I had already returned. Idris easily yielded to her persuasions, she leaned on the arm of her friend, she endeavoured to walk on, but irresistible faintness made her pause again and again. Quickened by the increasing storm, we had hastened our return, our little charge was placed before Adrian on his horse. There was an assemblage of persons under the portico of our house, in whose gestures I instinctively read some heavy change, some new misfortune. With swift alarm, afraid to ask a single question, I leapt from my horse, the spectators saw me, knew me, and in awful silence divided to make way for me. I snatched a light, and rushing upstairs and hearing a groan, without reflection, I threw open the door of the first room that presented itself. It was quite dark, but as I stepped within, a pernicious scent assailed my senses, producing sickening qualms which made their way to my very heart, while I felt my legs clasped and a groan repeated by the person that held me. I lowered my lamp and saw a negro, half-clad, writhing under the agony of disease, while he held me with a convulsive grasp. With mixed horror and impatience I strove to disengage myself, and fell on the sufferer. He wound his naked, festering arms round me. His face was close to mine, and his breath, death-laden, entered my vitals. For a moment I was overcome, my head was bowed by aching nausea, till reflection returning I sprung up, threw the wretch from me, and darting up the staircase, entered the chamber usually inhabited by my family. A dim light showed me Alfred on a couch, Clara trembling and paler than whitest snow, had raised him on her arm, holding a cup of water to his lips. I saw full well that no spark of life existed in that ruined form, his features were rigid, his eyes glazed, his head had fallen back. I took him from her, I laid him softly down, kissed his cold little mouth, and turned to speak in a vain whisper, when loudest sound of thunder-like cannon could not have reached him in his immaterial abode. And where was Idris, that she had gone out to seek me and had not returned, were fearful tidings, while the rain and driving wind clattered against the window and roared round the house. Added to this, the sickening sensation of disease gained upon me. No time was to be lost, if ever I would see her again. I mounted my horse and rode out to seek her, fancying that I heard her voice in every gust, oppressed by fever and aching pain. I rode in the dark and rain through the labyrinthine streets of unpeopled London. My child lay dead at home. The seeds of mortal disease had taken root in my bosom. I went to seek Idris, my adored, now wandering alone while the waters were rushing from heaven like a cataract to bathe her dear head in a chill damp, her fair limbs in numbing cold. A female stood on the step of a door and called to me as I galloped past. It was not Idris, so I rode swiftly on, until a kind of second sight, a reflection back again on my senses of what I had seen but not marked, made me feel sure that another figure, 
thin, graceful, and tall, stood clinging to the foremost person who supported her. In a minute I was beside the suppliant. In a minute I received the sinking Idris on my arms. Lifting her up, I placed her on the horse. She had not strength to support herself, so I mounted behind her and held her close to my bosom, wrapping my riding cloak round her, while her companion, whose well-known but changed countenance, it was Juliet, daughter of the Duke, could at this moment of horror obtain from me no more than a passing glance of compassion. She took the abandoned rein, and conducted our obedient steed homewards. Dare I avouch it? That was the last moment of my happiness. But I was happy. Idris must die, for her heart was broken. I must die, for I had caught the plague. Earth was a scene of desolation. Hope was madness. Life had married death. They were one. But thus supporting my fainting love, thus feeling that I must soon die, I revelled in the delight of possessing her once more. Again and again I kissed her and pressed her to my heart. We arrived at our home, I assisted her to dismount, I carried her upstairs, and gave her into Clara's care, that her wet garments might be changed. Briefly I assured Adrian of her safety, and requested that we might be left to repose. As the miser, who with trembling caution visits his treasure to count it again and again, so I numbered each moment, and grudged every one that was not spent with Idris. I returned swiftly to the chamber where the life of my life reposed. Before I entered the room I paused for a few seconds. For a few seconds I tried to examine my state. Sickness and shuddering ever and anon came over me. My head was heavy, my chest depressed, my legs bent under me, but I threw off resolutely the swift-growing symptoms of my disorder, and met Idris with placid and even joyous looks. She was lying on a couch, carefully fastening the door to prevent all intrusion. I sat by her, we embraced, and our lips met in a kiss, long drawn and breathless. Would that moment had been my last. Maternal feeling now awoke in my poor girl's bosom, and she asked, And Alfred? Idris, I replied, we are spared to each other, we are together. Do not let any other idea intrude. I am happy even on this fatal night. I declare myself happy beyond all name, all thought. What would you more, sweet one? Idris understood me. She bowed her head on my shoulder and wept. Why, she again asked, do you tremble, Anne? What shakes you thus? Well, may I be shaken, I replied, happy as I am. Our child is dead, and the present hour is dark and ominous. Well may I tremble, but I am happy, mine own Idris, most happy. I understand thee, my kind love, said Idris, thus, pale as thou art with sorrow at our loss, trembling and aghast, thou wouldest assuage my grief by thy dear assurances. I am not happy. And the tears flashed and fell from under her downcast lids, for we are inmates of a miserable prison, and there is no joy for us. But the true love I bear you will render this and every other loss endurable. We have been happy together, at least, I said. No future misery can deprive us of the past. We have been true to each other for years, ever since my sweet princess love came through the snow to the lowly cottage of the poverty-stricken heir of the ruined Verney. Even now that eternity is before us, we take hope only from the presence of each other. Idris, do you think that when we die we shall be divided? Die? When we die? What mean you? What secret lies hid from me in those dreadful words? Must we not all die, dearest? I asked with a sad smile. "'Gracious God, are you ill, Lionel, that you speak of death? My only friend, heart of my heart, speak.' "'I do not think,' replied I, "'that we have any of us long to live, and when the curtain drops on this mortal scene, where, think you, we shall find ourselves?' Idris was calmed by my unembarrassed tone and look. She answered, "'You may easily believe that during this long progress of the plague I have thought much on death, and asked myself, now that all mankind is dead to this life, to what other life they may have been born?' Hour after hour I have dwelt on these thoughts, and strove to form a rational conclusion concerning the mystery of a future state. What a scarecrow, indeed, would death be, if we were merely to cast aside the shadow in which we now walk, and stepping forth into the unclouded sunshine of knowledge and love, revived with the same companions, the same affections, and reached the fulfilment of our hopes, leaving our fears with our earthly vesture in the grave. Alas, the same strong feeling which makes me sure that I shall not wholly die, makes me refuse to believe that I shall live wholly as I do now. Yet, Lionel, never, never can I love any but you. 
Through eternity I must desire your society, and as I am innocent of harm to others, and as relying and confident as my mortal nature permits, I trust that the ruler of the world will never tear us asunder. Your remarks are like yourself, dear love, replied I, gentle and good. Let us cherish such a belief, and dismiss anxiety from our minds, but sweet we are so formed, and there is no sin, if God made our nature, to yield to what he ordains. We are so formed, that we must love life and cling to it. We must love the living smile, the sympathetic touch and thrilling voice, peculiar to our mortal mechanism. Let us not, through security and hereafter, neglect the present. This present moment, short as it is, is a part of eternity, and the dearest part, since it is our own unalienably. Thou, the hope of my futurity, art my present joy. Let me then look on thy dear eyes, and reading love in them, drink intoxicating pleasure. Timidly, for my vehemence somewhat terrified her, Idris looked on me. My eyes were bloodshot, starting from my head, every artery beat, methought, audibly, every muscle throbbed, each single nerve felt. Her look of wild affright told me that I could no longer keep my secret. So it is, my own beloved, I said, the last hour of many happy ones is arrived, nor can we shun any longer the inevitable destiny. I cannot live long, but again and again, I say, this moment is ours. Paler than marble, with white lips and convulsed features, Idris became aware of my situation. My arm, as I sat, encircled her waist. She felt the palm burn with fever, even on the heart it pressed. One moment, she murmured, scarce audibly. Only one moment. She kneeled, and hiding her face in her hands, uttered a brief but earnest prayer that she might fulfil her duty and watch over me to the last. While there was hope, the agony had been unendurable. All was now concluded. Her feelings became solemn and calm. Even as Epicharis, unperturbed and firm, submitted to the instruments of torture, did Idris, suppressing every sigh and sign of grief, enter upon the endurance of torments, of which the rack and the wheel are but faint and metaphysical symbols. I was changed. The tight-drawn cord that sounded so harshly was loosened, the moment that Idris participated in my knowledge of our real situation. The perturbed and passion-tossed waves of thought subsided, leaving only the heavy swell that kept right on without any outward manifestation of its disturbance, till it should break on the remote shore towards which I rapidly advanced. "'It is true that I am sick,' I said, "'and your society, my Idris, is my only medicine. Come and sit beside me.' She made me lie down on the couch, and drawing a low ottoman near, sat close to my pillow, pressing my burning hands in her cold palms. She yielded to my feverish restlessness, and let me talk, and talk to me, on subjects strange indeed to beings, who thus looked the last, and heard the last, of what they loved alone in the world. We talked of times gone by, of the happy period of our early love, of Raymond, Perdita, and Evadne. We talked of what might arise on this desert earth, if two or three being saved, it were slowly repeopled. We talked of what was beyond the tomb, and man in his human shape being nearly extinct, we felt with certainty of faith that other spirits, other minds, other perceptive beings, sightless to us, must people with thought and love this beauteous and imperishable universe. We talked I know not how long, but in the morning I awoke from a painful heavy slumber, the pale cheek of Idris rested on my pillow. The large orbs of her eyes half raised the lids and showed the deep blue lights beneath, her lips were unclosed, and the slight murmurs they formed told that, even while asleep, she suffered. If she were dead, I thought, what difference, now that form is the temple of a residing deity? Those eyes are the windows of her soul, all grace, love, and intelligence are throned on that lovely bosom. Were she dead, where would this mind, the dearer half of mine, be? For quickly the fair proportion of this edifice would be more defaced than are the sand-choked ruins of the desert temples of Palmyra. Thank you once again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. You can find us online at Black Clock Audio Tales on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Meet up with us at pgttcm.com. Find out what's going on with this and other podcasts by Badger Drift Studios, which is where we record this. 
in beautiful North Portland. If you want to be on a show, if you have a book that you would like to have reviewed, if you want to be on Welcome to Portland, eat charcuterie and drink beer in the studio while learning how to podcast, I can accommodate that. But you have to take the first step by going to pgttcm.com and submitting. Send us a link to your stories. Become friends with us on Facebook at uh, pgttcm or Black Clock Audio Tales. And pgttcm, of course, is short for The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly show at the end of every month on Tuesday, we have PGTTCM. Thank you so much for listening. Edited by D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, as always. Thank you. <laughs>